Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. So good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Natalia Vasquez, and I do the yin restorative nidra practices here at the Miami Life Center, stillness and rest. Um, and I'm also founder of Heart and Brain Studios, which is a space specifically for restful practices combined with um, creativity, as I'm also a visual artist. Um, and I'm very happy to be sitting at this table with this amazing um, set of panelists that I will introduce to you, um, who are here to talk about the topic of yoga and trauma. So thank you for joining us. Um, I'll start with Anne. Um, we have Anne Hurley here, who is a trauma psychotherapist, also a yoga teacher and an art therapist. And she works with the Gratitude House, uh, Shepherd Pratt Center for Eating Disorders, and Walter Reed, um, and George Washington University. And she has a private practice in West Palm Beach. No, Palm Beach. In Palm Beach. <laughs> um, then we have Dennis Hunter, who is Director of Marketing at Energy and Warrior Flow, correct? And Kula for Karma. And Kula for Karma. And he is a meditation teacher, also focusing on sound healing. He's also an author and a former Buddhist monk and also a trauma survivor. So um, over here we have um, Kristen Jones, who is a doctor of health science, a psychotherapist and director of dialectical behavioral therapy at the counseling group. Um, welcome. Um, and here we have Greg Nardi, who is an ERYT 500 yoga teacher and also an Ashtanga yoga teacher, um, the owner of Ashtanga Yoga Worldwide in Fort Lauderdale, um, and also um, co-founder of the Amayu Yoga. Mm -hmm. um, yes, welcome. Thank you. And I actually would just, yes. one more thing. Uh, I'm formerly an authorized teacher with the KPJ Institute in Mysore, India. Yes, yes. Um, and then we have um, Adam Otavi, who is a certified rolfer and somatic therapist, also a visual artist, um, and uh, yin yoga teacher, correct? correct? Mm -hmm. So that is my introduction, but I would love to open the floor for them each to introduce themselves in their own words. So about one or two minutes, just talking about how your work and your practices connect with yoga and trauma. So we'll start the other way around. So Adam, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I'll first define rolfing because it's usually the question that I get asked daily. Um, so uh, Ida Rolf was a, uh, an American. Her parents were Dutch immigrants. She uh, was a biochemist. She received her PhD in biochemistry in 1920 from Columbia. She went on to become a Rockefeller scholar and she always studied connective tissue. Um, she then went on to study osteopathy and yoga and probably in the 50s or 60s started working with clients who could not find um, relief or treatment in the Western medicine world. And basically Rolfing is, Rolfers think of connective tissue. So if chiropractors think bone and psychologists think the psyche, Rolfers often think fascia, tendons and ligaments. Okay, And what we do is we work <laughs> it's typically characterizes very deep tissue work, which is, I think, an oversimplification. Um, the work itself 
um, is designed to increase mobility, to work with the whole person, um, both physically and psychologically. Um, although Ida Rolf was once asked, why don't you work with the psychology more directly? And she said, well, I work with the body because it's what I can get my hands on. Um, somatics and somatic therapy, at least in my world, and you can correct me if you feel differently, um, refers to a few very nuanced forms of um, body-based work. Body, the soma meaning the body. Um, and those are Feldenkrais work, some of you may know of. Um, Rolfing, I consider Pilates to be, uh, good Pilates to be um, a form of somatic therapy, as well as like the Alexander technique, okay? And all of these forms of work tend to try and reconnect the body and the brain in some way. Um, and um, I guess I'll just say that I fell into this work kind of almost by accident, meaning working with trauma survivors. I had, uh, I was a massage therapist and a rolfer and eventually clients started telling me about their traumatic histories and how those traumatic histories affected their structure, meaning their bodies. And so um, emotional releases would happen during the Rolf work um, and, and also clients would have epiphanous moments. And so that led me to, to you know, attain more training in, in what we call trauma-informed body work or trauma-informed Rolf work as well as Gestalt therapy. And yeah, good. Thank you. All right. Um, so I am not a trauma-informed uh, yoga teacher, or at least I have no training in that. Um, but I'm trying to get an education very quickly, and uh, hopefully learning a lot from everyone on this panel tonight. Um, I have been in Ashtanga Yoga, I've been a, a yoga practitioner and teacher since 1996 and I was uh, an authorized teacher with the, through the KPJ, I worked with Patavi Joyce directly. Um, and you know when revelations about the sexual abuse came out last year um, that really kind of impacted me in a big way, of course uh, my first thought was you know of course to believe um, the things that were said and, and then try to kind of then go back through all of my memories and my training and everything trying to really understand what happened exactly. Um, as a result of that I did reach out to a lot of trauma-informed yoga therapists, um, mental health workers, uh, and I've reached out with a, a, a collective of teachers mostly based in the UK, a few of us here in the States, um, trying to organize a teacher training organization that brings greater awareness around the teaching of Ashtanga Yoga. Um, so primarily a student-centered uh, approach that is based on student empowerment and consent, um, reframing yoga perhaps as more of a somatic awareness uh, modality rather than kind of an aesthetic or about alignment or perfection of poses, these types of things. So, so really kind of you know, shifting the authority away from teachers uh, and, and think of it more as a partnership and using yoga as a way that, that students can reclaim their own authority um, to make choices around their body and around their practice. So this is kind of the, the mission, I would say, of this organization called Amayu Yoga um, that we're in the process of developing. 
Hello, everyone. Um, I so I guess I'll take you to my start with the yoga background. So I started practicing yoga um, in college, in early college, um, and I pretty quickly, you know, recognized the powerful impact on myself. Like, you know, I tell most people that it changed my life. Um, in college, I was studying psychology, so you know, the two just kind of like intertwined with each other right from the start, and I was recognizing that what I was learning there was really similar to what I was learning in yoga. Um, so, you know, fast forward, went through graduate school, and I, and I never really, and I was teaching yoga all throughout that. Um, you know, my main interest was in working with eating disorders and anxiety disorders and substance abuse primarily. Um, I actually never really considered working with trauma. <laughs> Um, until I actually started practice. And right off the bat, I just noticed that, <laughs> excuse me, I'm not sick, I'm just kind of like <laughs> still healing. Um, but I noticed really quickly that trauma was kind of inescapable if I was gonna be working in psychotherapy, especially in, you know, with the populations who I was working with. Um, so I pretty quickly had to, um, you know, up my knowledge base with trauma and, and really understand the impact. Um, I kind of fell into working with a type of personality disorder called borderline personality disorder. I'm not sure if anybody is familiar with that. Um, you know, it tends to present pretty intensely, a lot of really intense emotions, a lot of times suicidality, self-harm, eating disorders, substance <coughs> abuse. It can be a lot of things, difficulty with relationships. And, you know, the research kind of shows that about 80% of those people have trauma. And there is some school of thought, too, that, you know, it's kind of misdiagnosed PTSD or, you know, typically complex PTSD. Um, you know, but there was this idea, too, that when you're working with that population that you can't do trauma work. Because they're too intense, you know, like, somebody's suicidal, then we can't start digging to their trauma because they don't have the capacity. Um, so I became trained in this kind of therapy that was actually meant for that population, dialectical behavior therapy, and it's this um, prolonged exposure protocol for that population. Um, and it starts with kind of like a resourcing, understanding emotions, getting in touch with the body and the emotions, um, and then kind of pursuing the trauma work. And it works really well, and I've seen some you know, amazing um, progress with people, kind of life-changing effects of it. Um, you know, and I think trauma is kind of everywhere. So, you know, I think yoga in particular is a really important way to start to heal the body, heal the mind, and, um, you know, start to approach the world in a different way. Especially when it comes to, you know, shame and fear and those emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my spiel. <laughs> <laughs> so, I started uh, really intensely practicing um, meditation and studying Buddhism about 17 years ago and fairly quickly was asked to teach a workshop on meditation so I was thrown into the fire very quickly as a teacher and um, continued to, to do that for a number of years and then it wasn't until quite a bit later that I, I did a 200 hour yoga teacher training and became certified to teach yoga but I very quickly figured out after doing that training that I didn't really like teaching asana very much so I kind of took all of the learning that I that I had from the yoga training and reincorporated it back into my practice as a meditation teacher, and that kind of broadened my scope of, of teaching as a meditation teacher. So about 
two years ago I became involved with this organization, this t-shirt I'm wearing, it's called Cooler for Karma. And what Cooler for Karma does is, uh, it's a nonprofit organization, a lot of programs in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, but also branching out now into Florida, Ohio, Washington. And we bring therapeutic yoga and meditation to populations that are recovering from trauma, addiction, and mental health uh, issues. So we go into rehab centers, hospitals, um, shelters, uh, anywhere that there's a population that uh, could use therapeutic yoga and meditation as one of the modalities that they're receiving for treatment. And we bring that service to them at no cost to them. It's always paid for either through the, the facility or through donations or through grants or something like that. So it's, it's never at a cost to the participant. And it was really, um, I guess they say, you know, that you learn, you teach most what you need to learn. And it was really when I was asked through Kula for Karma to step up and help lead a couple of teacher trainings, advanced teacher trainings for yoga teachers focused on therapeutic yoga for trauma and addiction, um, that I was put in the hot seat and forced to really look within myself and realize how much trauma I had been through in my own life and, and really come to terms with that in a new way. It's not like I didn't know the things that I had been through, but I was able to reframe them within the context of everything I had learned about trauma and understand the roots of some of my own um, personal psychological makeup and some of the things that I struggle with uh, and how directly they had stemmed from my childhood uh, traumatic experiences. So, uh, that's me. Thank you, Dennis. Hi, Anne. Hi, Anne. Um, uh, I started a long time in the healthcare business as a nurse and learned very, very early on as I was an ICU nurse that the medical world was not going to be enough to heal someone. I had seen too much trauma, too many families um, affected, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s when um, it was a very different time in medicine. And I went to school to be a therapist and um, when I was in it, trauma was the main focus. So I was we were all trained exclusively for the extra hours in counseling to be trauma-informed therapists. When I graduated, I was um, immediately received a job at Walter Reed working with the vets from Iraq. So I became very quickly indoctrinated into trauma and how to work with it. I then um, realized at that time, my experience is that everybody, you know, we can look at this cognitively therapy treatment for trauma and then we need to look at it in an expressive form which could be through arts, drama, psychodrama, however you approach this. And then I always find the last phase of therapy is always body work. And you know it can it doesn't have to follow in that order but it works that way somehow. And I had also gone back out a master's in art therapy also because I thought expressive therapies played a key role. I mean I won't neuroscience is a big thing for me but I won't get into it but we can't tap into a lot of what's going on. And then unfortunately, through the expressive therapy in the body, it will come out and we can heal without knowing the whole picture. Um, with Walter Reed, I was recruited to work at a place called Shepherd Pratt with eating disorders. And I, I need to backtrack. When I was at Walter Reed, I then trained in somatic experiencing, a form of therapy. And I still wanted it to work and I thought it would be great. But, you know, to ask a gentleman that has very strong PTSD to, or a woman, to say to them, um, 
you know, I'd like you to tell me what you're feeling in your body right now, but they can't feel anything. So I knew that we weren't there and that I needed to do something else. So I started doing yoga with them. I had dabbled in yoga in the 70s, and I'll admit I'm very, very high energy, so um, <laughs> me doing a Hatha yoga class wasn't very good in like 1986. It was like, I rode my bike like to get there to be able to do it and uh, <laughs> to sit still. And um, what came out of this work was I was able to start to see I could use the uh, asanas, I could use them, I could use the warrior, I could use metaphors with it, and we could do it, we could learn how to get away from the walls, we could learn how to be, but the biggest thing I got out of it that changed it for me was I realized with them nothing worked to ask them to feel their bodies, so I asked them to take their shoes off. Whenever they got traumatized, we'd take the shoes off and we'd go outside and we'd get in the mud, so they get the cold, they get the sensation. I knew at that point I had to find something else, it wasn't going to work if I kept on this route of the snacks. So um, I had been recruited to work at uh, eating disorders and bring their trauma program with expressive therapies and mindfulness into their program. And it's there that I talked to them at Shepherd Pratt into allowing us to bring yoga into eating disorders because they only wanted yoga nidra. And I'm like, no, 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 there's more to this. Trust me, trust me. So they sent me to India to study in Rishikesh, and, which was kind of cool. But, um, I think they were a little upset when I didn't come back for a while. But anyway, <laughs> it was very. <laughs> but from that, it led to, um, and I had always worked in substance abuse. And I, just like Kristen mentioned, trauma's everywhere. Trauma's the foundation. You know, we have big T's and little T's, and especially with the population now. I mean, just being told you're unattractive when you're young, that's a small trauma you're going to carry. And it's going to manifest, and it's going to affect so many things. So, you know, I think we all have sensitivities. And so with that, I've been in that time of, my career for 27 years I've been involved with substance abuse and the treatment of it and working with clients with it so that's always been on the baseline too with that so I um, really saw this work but I'm one of those people who feels you have to really do it yourself so I came here and did an intensive two years ago thought I was gonna die but I did it I felt <laughs> I thought I was the oldest in the room I was like darn it but um, I love uh, Stanga yoga because for me it it's, you're always using the right and left of the body, which is mimicking the bilateral stimulation, which is the healing of the neural pathways in the brain. So it's so beautiful, the, the practice in itself. And that led me going to work with David Emerson and doing trauma-sensitive yoga because I figured we had to change our approach. And I need to change my approach, you know. I'm very much a practitioner who's like, may I touch you? May I be, how close can I come? I want to ask someone, you know, I don't want to trigger them. I've worked with Walter E. Wright got it, I had to go get in my car to find one of my clients. You know, it's taken it that far out. So um, I'm very happy to see this coming in here, you know, and being part of yoga. I think yoga's, I, so I guess I missed the point I should have got to. <laughs> Sorry. SC doesn't really work. It's the yoga, I think, that works. Mm -hmm. You have to bring it through the body. You can empower someone by saying, you know, I feel that in my body and you let them feel it and you let them stay in it and it doesn't have to be about the trauma. They need to get authentic with themselves or anybody doesn't get empowered. So with that now I run a foundation for Gratitude House which is a um, 50 year old foundation for women who are homeless or indigent with their babies and pregnant and we offer them treatment and we are now working with Hanley, Hazelton and other organizations in Palm Beach County to bring this to the treatment because we feel it's so valuable and so important. It's really, and it's being well received. So that's my story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, so 
I just want to mention that some of the topics that may come up may be triggering, especially since we have laid on the table that trauma is everywhere. So for a moment, I'd just like everyone to check in with your own heart. So sit up tall and root yourself down. And start to breathe in and out your nose. Observe the pace and the rate of your heartbeat. And start to bring a little bit more control into each inhale and exhale. And if your heart is beating fast, maybe place one hand over your heart. And know that you can do this at any point if the conversation makes you feel a little bit out of sorts. And I'd like to welcome a sensation of sacred space as we talk about topics that may trigger us. Listen to yourself and be mindful of everyone around you. And we'll open the space with the sound of three ohms. Join if you'd like. Take a full breath in. that you have before you an all-white panel. So the idea of yoga and accessibility, um, the costs of yoga, what it means to actually be able to enter a yoga space and feel welcome. Um, these are all things to just keep in mind and we will likely touch on them throughout the conversation. Um, this is a practice that we want to be made accessible to everyone. So how do we do that? How do we, uh, through organizations like Dennis and, and Anne, how do we start bringing yoga into communities, into populations that wouldn't otherwise have access? Um, and one more thing, if you have any questions, we will have about 20, 25 minutes for a Q&A at the end, so please hold your questions until the end. So to really get started, um, let's define trauma. So I've got three little quotes and then I'll turn it over to everyone else. So the first is a, a loose, in my opinion, definition of trauma from the American Psychology Association from an article um, entitled Recovering Emotionally from Disaster. Uh, trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, rape, or natural disaster. Immediately after the event, shock and denial are typical. 
Longer-term reactions include unpredictable emotions, flashbacks, strained relationships, and even physical symptoms like headaches and nausea. While these feelings are normal, some people have difficulty moving on with their lives. And now trauma-informed yoga, the small definition from the International Journal of Complementary and Alternative Medicine. Trauma-informed yoga refers to the approach to teaching yoga in which the teachers have knowledge of trauma and the symptoms of trauma, as well as know how to provide a safe and supportive yoga class for individuals who are experiencing stress and or have been traumatized. And then from this book, which I think we've all agreed is essential reading when it comes to trauma, uh, The Body Keeps the Score by um, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, MD. Um, the essence of trauma is that it is overwhelming, unbelievable, and unbearable. Each patient demands that we suspend our sense of what is normal and accept that we are dealing with a dual reality the reality of a relatively secure and predictable present that lives side by side with the ruinous, ever-present past. So, to get started, um, I've got a question for Kristen and then we can expand and please feel free to chime in on each other's responses as well. So, to keep framing trauma, what is the difference between complex and single incident trauma? Sure. Very good question. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so there is a difference. So single incident trauma is kind of as it sounds. <laughs> it's a single incident. So this could be a car accident. It could be a single rape or sexual trauma. Um, it could be witnessing, you know, something where you know there was a death or close to a death. You know, something that is kind of you know typically extreme or life threatening in in nature. Um, so with those kinds of traumas, often there is kind of a shift in perception um, in the way that people perceive themselves, their world, their safety, their power. Um, it can be a shift in intimacy. Um, you know, it goes on and on and on. Um, you know, however, we're dealing with one incident um, over the course of a lifetime versus, you know, numerous, which is what we see in the complex trauma. So complex trauma can typically takes place over a number of years, and often it's with kind of a single perpetrator. Um, so this can be, you know, we see this with child abuse, um, you know, which is, you know, the earlier it happens, the more traumatic the situation, because... Um, you know, with complex trauma, it can cause just a really fundamental shift in perception of self and the world and safety, the ability to t attach, the ability to trust. Um, you know, we also see this in, which I'm sure that, you know, Anne, you know from working with the war veterans, you know, people who are captured um, and for a long period of time they're, you know, tortured, you know, this can happen with Holocaust, this happened with Holocaust victims, um, where it's just an extended, repetitive um, experience of trauma. Um, you know, we could talk about this like the whole hour. <laughs> um, you know, but often with that comes a complication of sometimes identification with the perpetrator, um, 
you know, when it happens as a child, often, you know, there's such an intense need for a child to be able to attach to, you know, a parent or, you know, a figure, a, a parental figure. Um, and it's kind of, you know, the brain can't fully conceptualize at that point that that person who is supposed to love and care for them is doing this terrible thing. So, you know, often in that case, you know, they start to internalize it. They start to feel that they deserve it. And it kind of, you know, can shift to, you know, a deep-seated feeling of being bad or wrong or inadequate. Um, so a lot of shame there. And also, like, even with, you know, an adult who doesn't have this traumatic background, they then go to war and they're captured um, for an extended period of time. And, you know, the brain, in order to kind of function and survive that, they start to sometimes see that, person, um, you know, in a positive light, so it can be really complicated. Um, you know, the, the recovery from complex trauma is typically a lot longer, more complex um, than a simple trauma. Um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. And, and I, I want to add, too, that the younger this happens, um, the more... Um, damage happens to the brain. So that early, early trauma that happens when the brain is developing in childhood um, can cause some fundamental changes in the brain structure. Um, you know, the brain's ama amazing because it can heal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and given the right circumstances, the right therapies, trusting people, um, it can heal. But, you know, the earlier that it happens, typically the more difficult it is too. Thank you. Does is, anyone have anything to add? Is there to a this? term for multiple traumas? <coughs> uh, is it compounded or complex? complex. That's complex. complex, but not necessarily by the same purpose. That's true. That's good. Thanks okay. for yeah. Sometimes complex trauma can be just okay. a number of consecutive traumas that happen that are not necessarily interconnected. Although sometimes, you know, a single incident trauma can make somebody vulnerable for other traumas to happen. And it's not always abuse or something that was done by a perpetrator. Mm -hmm. There are kinds of adverse childhood experiences. Some of them fall into the abuse category, but others are like neglect or household dysfunction. Absolutely. That, uh, those are conditions that if you're exposed to them, as I was to some of them growing up, they lead to a kind of complex trauma that's difficult to unravel as an adult. Absolutely. Yeah. And my, in, in DBT, the kind of therapy that I practice mostly, we we um, have the term traumatic invalidation, which mm -hmm. is that kind of environment where you're kind of given this med message that you're fundamentally wrong or bad or, um, you know, something to be ashamed of, someone to be ashamed of. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be that kind of, like, obvious big T trauma as you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. we have the big T's, which would be your complex trauma over a period of time, and then the little T's, like I mentioned before. But I think, too, that it's, um, it's important to it. If it affects your attachment yes. so much, the complex trauma. So a lot of times it'll affect your interpersonal relationships. Even when you're no longer in the trauma, if it's unresolved, it will come in in relationships or jobs or things you're doing. And people usually around 30 will come in and say, oh, yeah. something's up. I'm, I'm not functioning at a normal level. Yeah, absolutely. So, and um, in one of our emails, you quoted that I find I find that trauma survivors' work is always around safety and comfort, and how they will bring that into their lives. Um, so, how does trauma affect 
the mind-body beyond, beyond what um, Kristen was saying and what actually happens within the brain. How does it affect people's um, developmental skills if it happens from childhood? And then what are some of the things that you see in adults um, who have, their safe, have had their safety compromised? Well, what I see with a lot of adults, since I get a lot, someone usually that's um, been attracted to the military too will usually have a family background that has been a long dysfunctional background with trauma. There's usually an attraction, there can be. Um, one of the things I see how the brain has changed in Kristen touch on, we, I will say complex trauma, some will say dissociative identity disorder. I have a lot of dissociative clients um, and their brains have been a check. But I think it's a positive thing and I don't know how you feel about it because they found a way to live. To survive the trauma, we naturally, our brain will split and dissociate off so that we don't feel it totally and that's why we need to be numb to it and that's why I have grown to really love yoga because I think there's a big catchphrase that we're not using anymore anyways but they would say it was integration you know we all have, are made up of parts but they would say the mind was fractured in trauma and um, with yoga it's almost about you re-empowering yourself to reintegrate yourself reintegrate yourself be yourself learn about yourself become authentic to yourself become safe um, you can be so many ways. I mean, I, um, being I did a, a master's in art therapy, I did a lot of work with school system. I ran the outreach program for the state of Delaware, and we had a lot of developmental trauma. We could see developmentally children were affected by traumas in the home. But, and you have Broca, how all that, I mean, I could get into a lot of terminology, but I, I think the reason I came from the, the point of saying safety and comfort is I feel once you've had trauma, you can never recreate enough safety and comfort for yourself. And you should allow that for yourself. And that's the foundation for me, for someone to become safe again. And um, with the long-term complex trauma that I've dealt with with most of my clients, because if they're eating disorders, most of them are very young, and this is very primal. They've gone to the eating disorder first, and they've gone to substance abuse, and they've gone to self-harm, then they've gone to poor relate. I mean, it runs a continuum. And... Mainly it's bringing in different modalities of treatment, you know, more than just psychotherapy, bringing in expressive therapies, bringing in rolfing, bringing in massage therapists, bringing in whatever you need or yoga therapy. I hope I'm answering this. Does yes, it? yes. No. Okay. Um, and that's the way, but also I think the key piece for safety and comfort is becoming empowered yourself. Saying, like we, we were talking in these emails, you know, in yoga one of the big things I talk about now is, is learning <laughs> to ask, you know, it's, I, you know what, I don't want an assist. I'm not in the right place today. And it doesn't have to be a joke trauma background. It's just, I'm not comfortable today. And that will, when I do that with clients, they're so empowered, you know, so, so empowered. Um, but we, I didn't have that tool before I learned it, <laughs> going to these trauma trainings. I would be like in a class, I'd be like, oh wow, I really just got moved a lot. And I'm gonna be in the Epsom salts all night. Mm. You know, and so um, that, if that's what you're asking, the safety and comfort. but. I guess that's a mantra with my clients that I give, I want to give permission the minute you come in that this is what this is going to be about is you're recreating that safety and comfort for you to heal and grow. Yes. Thank you. So then this takes me to a topic that um, 
Maybe the question will be directed to Greg and to, and to Dennis. We'll start with Greg. Um, and for that, I'll quote from the Amayu website, which is what you're creating. Amayu is an organization based on the values of transparency, cooperative working, equality and ethics of consent, and pra practitioner empowerment that redefine the nature of the relationship between a yoga teacher and practitioner. Um, so this, just to start the basis off of um, people who come to yoga or any kind of spiritual practice to find a sacredness, um, to find that sense of safety, but then the abuse of power that has happened in the spiritual world at large, in the yoga world at large, um, and maybe if you want to talk just a little bit about that and then how to reshift the power dynamics mm -hmm. between the guru student and then we'll expand on the therapist client. Yeah. Um, that's a huge, huge. yeah, <laughs> huge. Um, yeah, but you know, I think that that there's been a maybe a f kind of a fundamental myth um, that has been per perpetuated through yoga culture, and that is, you know, this sort of myth that there is this kind of divine knowledge and that certain people have access to it and certain people don't. And so we, we kind of look to teachers as an access point to some type of knowledge that we lack. And so the focus then is put onto the teacher as the authority figure rather than, you know, this understanding that actually that, that sense of, of wholeness and, and enlightenment and whatever you want to call that, that's actually something that's innate in the student, and so it can't be found anywhere but within the student. And so looking to, you know, the, this model of a teacher who knows and who will kind of create lines around how you should do your body, move your body, and these types of things, and by following the system you'll eventually get somewhere. Um, you know, I just would like to see that model shift to where it's a little bit more of a transparent partnership between a teacher and a student. You know, obviously, the teacher has special training and special knowledge, but there are certain things that they will never know about the inner workings of, of that individual that they're working with. And so it, it absolutely has to be, you know, some kind of idea that we're working together towards this common goal of, of wholeness and healing. Um, and also that, you know, the, uh, as, you know, Anne was saying, like, you know, consent is a, is a huge part of that. Like, it has to be at the student's pace. It has to be, you know, they kind of have to lead the progress of their, of their healing journey, not necessarily having a teacher decide for them an agenda. Thank you. Mm. Dennis, what can you say about that? Um, I think one of the key words that you all touched upon earlier is safety. Mm. And the importance of, within a trauma-informed yoga context, creating a space and a situation and an interaction in which the student feels safe. Because someone who has experienced trauma no longer feels safe in their body, in their relationships to others, in their own mind, um, and definitely not in a, a relationship to a teacher where there's a power dynamic and all kinds of things can go wrong with that power dynamic and we see that happening so much as you mentioned in the worlds of yoga and Buddhism I mean we could rattle off such a long list of ven once venerated teachers who are now fallen um, my own original Sangha of Buddhism that I started out practicing in 
is now unraveling and coming apart and thousands of people around the world are just going through so much heartbreak um, because of the sexual allegations against the current lineage holder and a lot of the senior teachers who surround him. So it's really problematic when that power dynamic is established between teacher and student. Um, I think to kind of, I think where maybe where you were going with the question though is in terms of how do we, how do we reframe that within yes. a trauma-informed yoga context? And how, well, that and also how do we reframe it at large within, within public yoga class as well? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, would, I have to make the distinction first between a public yoga class, mm -hmm. which is one situation where you may, you most likely have some people in the room who have experienced trauma, mm -hmm. and you need to be aware of that and sensitive to it, mm -hmm. and that influences the choices that you make as a teacher about things like um, the way you dress and uh, the, the way you use your voice, whether you invite people to do postures or you command them to do postures. Mm -hmm. Um, things like uh, lighting and music, you know, can, all of these things can be very triggering. Um, the cues that you give for different kinds of breathing practices. Mm -hmm. So that's all within a public uh, kind of yoga setting. But then if you're actually doing what we do at Kula for Karma, which is take that and go into a clinical setting where you're dealing with a population that's all traumatized mm -hmm. and they're all recovering from some kind of trauma, whether it's you know, sexual trauma or they're combat veterans recovering from PTSD or they're um, you know, formerly homeless women at Lotus House. Uh, they all have different needs and creating a feeling of safety for them involves different things depending on their needs. So, for example, with the combat veterans, often they don't, they like to know exactly where the door is so they can get out fast if they need to. They often like to have their shoes right next to them um, rather than, you know, outside in the cubbyhole because of that feeling of, I might need to get out of this situation fast. Um, so it's really, it, it really varies a lot depending on the population and the audience that you're teaching to. But I think that on the whole, you know, these days we have so much yoga and so many different forms of yoga and yoga teachers are kind of a dime a dozen in the sense that they're just being churned out of these 200-hour yoga teacher trainings and for the most part they're completely uninformed about trauma and the presence of trauma within the student bodies that they might be teaching to. And it really takes some kind of uh, dedicated further learning to begin to understand uh, you know, the factors of trauma, how to change your teaching style, how to be sensitive to trauma, requires some additional learning. You know, the Yoga Alliance is starting to inch in that direction of offering some uh, continuing education around the subject of trauma and trauma-informed yoga, but the basic guidelines that make up, you know, a starting yoga teacher's training have nothing of that in them. So there's an, a big need for a lot more training around that.
reaching out uh, in the development of Amayu, one of the first places we looked was to trauma-informed yoga. And it was pointed out pretty early on, you know, because we thought, oh, well, that's what we need to do. We have to have trauma awareness in our general population yoga classes. And, you know, became clear really on exactly what you said, that there's a very big difference between kind of a, a class designed for people with trauma in a clinical setting versus maybe what we call a trauma-informed yoga. So in other words, creating a general population class where there's an awareness that people with trauma would be in that class and that you teachers are trained to have a sensitivity to that. So, you know, part of the um, training that, that, for instance, we're hoping to offer would be like all yoga teachers should get a basic training in trauma. All teachers should have mental health first aid as part of their background, you know. And, and then on top of that, also a scope of practice so that they know when are they actually trained to deal with something and when is it time for them to refer beyond their, their abilities, you know. And I think unfortunately we see a lot of times people trying to treat when they're absolutely not qualified to do so. One of the biggest things that we touched upon earlier in our conversation before we started is touch and adjustments and you know consent around that in the yoga world. It's a big topic of conversation. Um, generally speaking within you know the context of going into teach to a population that is based on you know trauma our, my approach is personally don't touch, like just don't go there because there's such a high chance that a touch might be misinterpreted, that it might trigger something um, because you're dealing with a, tr a population where the, the sensitivity to trauma is already so high. But even in a public yoga class, um, it's so easy to, and often yoga teachers, especially when they're new, they really want to make that connection with students. They want to prove themselves as teachers. And so they go in kind of aggressively and, and they adjust their students and they touch them. And you never know when you might be touching someone who doesn't want to be touched. Whether it's just because they don't want to be touched or because they have actually suffered trauma and being touched is triggering and re-traumatizing to them. So a lot of, as as you've been doing, a lot of studios these days are trying to take measures to create a context in which that's better understood by students and by teachers. So things like consent cards that you're using at your studio, uh, you're starting to see that pop up in more and more studios where you might have a chip or a card that says yes or no, I would like to be adjusted or no, I don't. Um, but even in, in that context where you're asking for consent before you move in to touch someone, it, it can still be problematic because often someone who has been traumatized that way, they might have been forced to say yes when they really mm -hmm. wanted to say no, and that might be their impulse when you ask for consent to touch them. They might feel in, you know, compelled to say yes, whether it's peer pressure or internal pressures. So it's just a really thorny topic. And these days my approach is hands off. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult one, and I know there's a whole spectrum of opinions on it. Um, you know, we've chosen to keep touch as part of the practice because I also think that healing, you know, the touch can have a tremendous healing benefit. Um, you know, but, but we certainly approach it very differently. Like, it's, it goes beyond, you know, as, as I was saying earlier, like, in the beginning I thought, oh, I'll just put these cards out, everybody's going to take them, it's going to be wonderful. And they just kind of collected dust for, like, four months, you know. And it was really sort of much more about creating a culture of 
consent um, and kind of training people on why these cards might be actually not just something to, to draw a line or a boundary, but actually that it's a tool that can enhance your communication with yourself. So it's something that you actually consider. Do I want to flip this chip? Do I want to have the chip? Do I, you know, these types of things. Um, it can enhance your relationship with your teacher because now it's a two-way street of communication between your teacher. So, you know, we kind of frame it as a benefit and not as like this special thing that I have to have because I've, I've suffered from trauma or, you know, this, this identification with the victimhood. Um, that I found was really useful. And, and we still, you know, on top of the chips, we've kind of implemented three levels of consent. And you could even maybe say four because there's sort of the, you know, Number one, I think consent has for a long time been viewed as the lack of a no. And now I'm glad to see consent being redefined as something that is informed, that is um, affirmative, and that is ongoing. You know what I mean? So it's like you've got to get a yes, you have to get a yes over and over and over again. And so there's sort of that piece of informing people when they come in about what is actually going to happen in this classroom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah, there might be an implied consent that somebody walking into an Ashtanga class knows that part of the deal is that you're going to get assisted, but you, know, you still want to have that conversation beforehand. Then, you know, when, when somebody would come in, I typically probably wouldn't adjust them initially. Um, you know, you have to build that trusting relationship first, right? You don't want to just assume anything about somebody's body. And then after you've done that work, then we have the chips, which people can elect to use or not to use. And still I try to ask permission every time, um, at the very least, broadcast my intention, so saying what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and these types of things, um, making it clear they could say no at any time. And then on top of that, because some people actually really like adjustments, <laughs> is that we actually have a, a signal that um, my husband, uh, Juan Carlos, introduced, he brought from Vancouver, which is if you put your hands like this at any point in your practice, that you're actually requesting a teacher to come to you and work with you. So we've kind of created this whole culture and different layers where consent is kind of, we, we, we have checkpoints around it over and over and over again. I, I just think it's something that there has not been very much of a conversation around. You know, it, it was one of those things that was really shocking to me when all this came up and internally because I had to kind of go back and start look at my own practices and start to say, I have for years just been assuming that it's my choice when I want to touch somebody and how I want to touch them and you know and, and that this is sort of within my authority as a teacher and that was really hard to come to terms with you know what I mean like just kind of a lot of guilt and shame on that side of, of dealing with wow like all these practices that I've been engaged in for years and um, you know and just really trying to rethink them in a new context and, and uh, a new light. Thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting to hear also the processing that happens inside of a teacher, mm -hmm. you know, when, when certain things are brought to light. Can um, I add one thing? Yes, please. Um, we were actually having this discussion beforehand, and I, I was saying that when I teach um, yoga, I, I struggle with um, the private nature of my work, which is one-on-one, -on -one, versus what we know of like the public nature of therapy being beneficial like you know the, the reason why 12-step programs work in part is because you're witnessed by a group right and it's not just a private setting between yourself and the therapist um, and so in my yoga classes I started uh, looking at the class and saying if anyone doesn't want adjustments please raise your hand right now so it's actually a public thing and there's no shame around it you know and 
I like it for that reason, mm -hmm. and I understand why some people might not even feel comfortable raising their hand in public. But I just I think that there's so much I've experienced so much shame around um, other people's trauma um, that I find the public nature of that really valuable for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just difference of a approach. We'll keep the mic with you. Oh, so did you want to add something? I, I, just, I really like that also because one of the things I hear a lot is the touch, but then I also hear something that's really important, and, and I even myself struggled with it when I first came into yoga, is the breath. And especially someone who has trauma, usually they're holding their breath. It's all locked up in here. And to access that could be very traumatic. Mm -hmm. It could cause a lot to come out. And even when you're working with clients, like when I've worked one-on-one, -on -one, I have to be very careful. But what I've heard, which is great, is they'll say, they've gone to classes where someone will say, if you can't keep up with the breath, or you can't do it, it's okay to take an extra breath. It's okay if you're not on the same breath as everybody else, that's okay. Uh, the other piece I've heard is form. If someone says, you know, I can't get it perfect, but I felt my body more, that's okay too. You know, like they, they said, it's two parts. It's about learning alignment, and it's also about learning um, you know, the form and, you know, for yourself and how it's going to work for you, you know. And I don't know if you hear that, but that's been brought up to me quite a lot is the breath. Yeah. And I know that, you know, it's brought up about using invitational language mm -hmm. in kind of a trauma setting. And, you know, I found that sometimes it's not always possible to use, like, invitational language, which would be something like, step to the front of your mat if you'd like to, you know, or don't, you know what I mean? That, that probably wouldn't work, you know? But you can use more open language, like, it doesn't have to be a commanding, it can be sort of like, you know, um, you know, do this and see how it feels, you know, exactly. see what comes up for exactly. you, you know, this type of thing. So it's not sort of this sort of fixation on trying to make it perfect, which actually could be very disembodied, yeah. Yeah. you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. instead you're trying to say, no, focus on whatever comes up, and all answers are correct. Yeah. Yeah. What are you noticing? Yeah. You know, I love yeah. the word notice. What are you noticing? You know, yeah. What's your experience with it? Absolutely. I think that that's kind of one of the pieces that I wanted to touch on too is that you know, sometimes when people experience trauma they can kind of go into kind of an under controlled realm which is what a lot of people think of as like you know, a lot of you know, impulsive behavior, intense emotions, all of that, but some people go to the opposite side into kind of a, you know, an over controlled shutdown mode where they can become extremely perfectionistic and emotionally numbed and kind of overly independent. Um, so they're not attaching. So, you know, sometimes I found in my practice that there's been, um, you know, my clients who have done yoga or that experience, they have sometimes taken like the perfectionistic, like instruction as I need to be perfect. Um, and so I think with that language, that kind of like, okay, well, you know, this could be the way that you align your body or kind of listen to it and maybe that's not gonna work for you. Mm -hmm. um, but not kind of this fixation on one right way. Um, yeah. Absolutely, and I think too, with, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, with some of the yogic philosophy, I think it can be kind of taken to an extreme with like purification and even like brahmacharya, you know, with like celibacy, some people who have sexual trauma, they're like, oh, I'm just gonna be celibate, you know, because <laughs> yoga tells me to, and it's an avoidance strategy, you know, to not deal with the trauma, it's, you know, it's a response to the trauma. So um, I think that that's something important to make sure that we're kind of like, you know, these can be guidelines and they're loose. We have to see what works for you if it creates more imbalance, then that's not gonna work. 
<laughs> I, I think that the entire enlightenment story can be an avoidance strategy. Absolutely. You know, this idea that perfection is somewhere off if I just make, all, if I can control all the factors, there's some Shangri-La at the other end of it, and, and really, whatever enlightenment might be, it can only really happen right now, right in the moment, you know, and that's, it's that kind of real presence that we're trying to bring people to. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I think with like the deep shame that can happen, like a lot of times there's fear, but you know, often I find that this, you know, shame is kind of the primary traumatic emotion, and so I think that that kind of like fixation on the perfection just kind of further enhances that feeling with some people. And and I have definitely heard shame being used as a teaching tool. Yeah. And that's, you know, these are the types of things that I just want us to, as a, as a community and as a profession, just become more self-reflective around, you know, like what, I know we all kind of intend to heal, I uh, hope, as teachers, but, you know, I think that unintentionally there's a lot of kind of uh, behaviors and mindsets that are, that are reinforced that are very unhealthy. And what works for you might not work for me. And it's kind of like that, you know, like kind of accepting that too. So let's redirect a little bit because of time. Um, so I do want to talk about the body-mind connection with yoga. So maybe directing this at Adam and your work as a yin yoga teacher, but also your experience as a somatic um, therapist and through rolfing. What are some of the um, positive benefits that you found through the connection of the touch in your therapy combined yeah. with yoga? Hmm. Well, I find that often in my practice, clients come to, first of all, I have to say that I'm not a typical rolfer in the sense, <laughs> in the sense that I am a trauma-informed rolfer, and most rolfers are not, necessarily. Um, because the, the, the Rolf work, especially at the Rolf Institute in Colorado, it, it can be a very clinical program. It can be a very um, um, manual therapy. It, it produces a lot of manual therapists who work in the sports realm and who work with, who work with chiropractors. So um, it's just something I wanted to say so that it's not confused as something that's really informed by psychology and, and trauma therapy. Um, but uh, I often work with people who are really ready for this kind of work too. And I, and I think that Anne was saying that, you know, it's almost like a, a final step. It's not necessarily the beginning. Um, and I work with, the, the trauma survivors I've worked with are really good at like directing me. You know, they're really good at knowing exactly where we should start. Um, if it's the shoulder, because that's where the trauma, you know, first occurred, or that's where they feel it mostly, et cetera, et cetera. And I send them, uh, there's a Rolfing 10 series that works through the whole body, which I take a lot of people through. And it's a brilliant, brilliantly designed series by Ida Rolf. And the way that it flows through the body is, is the brilliance I'm talking about. Um, it starts with the breath, then moves to the feet, and then moves to the lateral line, then moves to the midline. It's it's really it's really smart. Um, but yoga for me is is where I send them when they're ready, because um, usually they have 
an extremely, uh, a wonderfully increased awareness of their body and their functioning after the 10 series or after we worked together for a number of sessions. And, and you know, it's catalytic in getting people more connected with their body's functioning. So then yoga can be a continuation of that. And that's, that's just how I usually view it. Um, now I practice yin yoga and I teach yin yoga. Um, and yin yoga and rolfing are both focused on connective tissue and slowly opening the body through gravitational pressure, right? So um, it's my elbow in a body, but it's not my force. It's I use gravity through my body. And there's something very satisfying about gravity, especially with trauma survivors, right? Um, uh, and gravitational pressure feels great, whereas when someone's handling you and manipulating your tissue, it feels sometimes very dangerous. Um, and so the natural unfolding that happens with tissue and rolfing is, is similar to what happens in yin yoga. Um, and it's also easy and accessible. I mean, I think Ashtanga can be very intimidating for some people who are not maybe physically inclined or athletic. Um, whereas yin yoga, restorative yoga, these are sort of more, uh, almost anyone can do them. And then if they feel more empowered, they move forward with different types of yoga like Ashtanga. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank yeah. you. Yes, go ahead, Dennis. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning when I introduced myself that I, I learned fairly soon after doing my 200-hour yoga teacher training that I didn't actually enjoy teaching asana very much. But uh, I actually trained later in yin, and I do really enjoy teaching yin. So um, one of the reasons I do is because it's, it's a much more meditative introspective kind of practice that, like you said, involves time and gravity and just allowing things to happen within the body rather than making them happen yeah. or even a step further, having someone else make them happen by manipulating the body. Right. Um, but one of the things that's underlying your question, and I think maybe Kristen or Anne are probably more qualified than I am to speak to this because it's, it's a medical question really, is what's going on within the nervous system of a person who is, has experienced trauma um, and in the, the sort of responses that develop over time uh, to a traumatic event or a complex series of traumatic experiences. So what we generally observe is that like with PTSD or, or some other traumatic manifestation like that, the, they're basically, to put it in really simple terms, there are two branches of the autonomic nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic, and one governs our sort of active response and upregulating and, and being uh, in the fight or flight mode and the stress response and all of that. And the parasympathetic governs our ability to rest and digest, to relax, to sleep, to slow down and to chill out. And what's often happening with people who are going through trauma and experiencing the response to trauma is that the sympathetic nervous system is chronically overstimulated. And one of the reasons why yoga and these kind of somatic practices are so helpful in the treatment is because they help to start to regulate the balance between those two parts of the nervous system. And even sometimes when I find it very helpful for myself to, to even go very deep into the parasympathetic part and give myself time and space to just really feel that 
slowing down and, and chilling out and relaxing within my body, within my nervous system. And that re-energizes me and replenishes me and it's really a vital part of the healing process. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said that really well. <laughs> I think I'll just add a couple of things. Um, sometimes when people experience trauma, as you said, it's kind of like this overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. And it just kind of gets like locked into that and, you know, people start to perceive the world and their internal experiences, you know, even a racing, you know, a racing heartbeat fast breath, all those things, you know, a lot of times people aren't just being triggered by things externally, they're also triggered by things internally. So, you know, it helps um, that being able to tap into the parasympathetic response helps them to be able to identify safe versus dangerous. And in doing that, you know, you can start to really change those belief systems that are really linked to trauma because, you know, what starts, what happens with trauma is it's not just kind of, um, you know, the re-experiencing what a lot of people, you know, the re-experiencing the trauma or the hyper arousal and all that, but it's also this belief system that I'm not safe or bad things are going to happen to me. Or if I feel this way, it's not okay, it's dangerous. So, you know, tapping into that, you know, there starts to become kind of a differentiation between safety and danger, which is imperative. Um, and I think it also helps our brain to kind of organize our memories, or especially our new memories, um, better. Because when the sympathetic nervous system, when we're in fight or flight, it you know kind of like disables the hippocampus, which is responsible for memories, and it doesn't allow us to kind of like create uh, quote unquote normal <laughs> memories that are you know chronological. So a lot of times the memories become kind of like flashes and. Um, they're not stored the way that other memories are. So I think tapping into that can help us to kind of create this new um, reserve of experiences in a different way um, to be able to start to kind of experience safety in the world. Does that make sense at all? Okay, good. I, I was going to say, what I like about yoga and the practice of yoga too is when someone's had long-term being in fight or flight, um, they'll come in and their adrenals are absolutely exhausted. They are in such a burnout. And the nice part about yoga is, in, especially in, in, in any form too, I would say, it's not just yoga nidra or restorative or yin, but I think um, it allows for the body to heal itself, your breathing. Um, one of the things I talk about with my colleagues all the time is, you know, staying in the pause. You know, you get that breath, you make the movement, just stay. And that's where all the healing actually is really going to happen. We talk about that. And that's when you're balancing the nervous system, you know, um, I always like that they say that you know, you know, when a, a polar bear is frightened, they shake it all out. There's a film on, you know, this whole film because they carry no trauma. Their nervous system's not at all. We freeze, and then we become the coke bottle that's been shaken up. And so, until we have things like yoga and other modalities like that, it's harder to heal. And this is just such a nice, gentle way to bring in a way to heal from all this trauma and not making the, and I like to always kind of put this, and not making the whole story about trauma. Mm -hmm. What I think is beautiful about yoga is that once you become familiar with your body and you become grounded and you feel the changes in implicit memory, which I'm talking about, you know, you make these changes, you become about you, your own authenticity and your own life and what you've recreated. And that's what I think yoga can do, so. 
I like that piece to how it changes the system. It allows us to do what we're naturally supposed what to we do. Supposed because to like, do. you look at the animals out there and they get attacked and they get all of this, but they will shake they're, they're crazy. Yeah, they shake it off. They don't shake like stay trapped in their little dens and things. They, you know, we're naturally programmed to do this. It's harder in our current world. Right. And yoga And you us. probably see that in Rolfing all the time. It's, it's lodged in the body. You right. know, the, the car accent is now like this, you know. I think one of the things about the Ashtanga method that I've, you know, because listen, it would have been very easy for me to just like walk away from Ashtanga yoga, right? So why did I stick with it? I, you know, I, I felt like there was something in this method also that was very useful and, and it was, you know, there is that kind of consistency and predictability about mm -hmm. the practice which can give a feeling of safety that you know what's coming. You know, and also the, this ability to teach it in this Mysore method where actually the students can direct themselves a lot more and kind of get into their somatic experience and then you know gradually process these things that come up. So you just brought up the key word for trauma. Mm -hmm. It's consistency. Mm -hmm. Is that's you asked earlier the safety and comfort. The more and more consistency, the more safety and comfort you'll have. Yeah, so practice gives you like so because of time, I'm just going to put out one more general question, but it's still a big one. So <laughs> this is for everyone. Um, so what are some tools through your practices with clients but also through yoga that you can provide or little tips that you can provide first of all for a trauma survivor to transform from victim to survivor and then also for yoga teachers or students sharing space and holding space for each other um, it's a big one but and however you choose to answer We'll just take this as the final question before uh, Q&A. Who would like to start? Um, I can. Okay. Um, so the, the first thing that came to mind was terminology. And it's one thing that I always um, sort of uh, stop right away. If clients come and they say, this is my bad shoulder, this is my good shoulder. Um, or this is, um, and I'll speak about a client, I'll give her a fake name, she doesn't live here, she lives in Alaska. Um, but her mother would attack her from the right side and she would often say my left side would um, always brace and I, and I we stopped that immediately and I said well your left side was actually holding strong for you right and she liked that terminology she was okay with it even though she I think tweaked it a little bit um, and I think that's really helpful it's really helpful for everybody even like my dad who says oh this is my bad hip or whatever you know um, because we say that hip has a different history and it's okay and we're never going to make any progress if you always think of it as your bad hip or as your shoulder your shoulder that endured uh, physical abuse you know it's, it's also the shoulder that survived and it's still functioning and it might be functioning okay right now too so that's an important part for me um, and what was the second part of the question? <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would just tips for either yoga teachers or uh, also students yeah. who feel great and love yoga yeah. and walk into the class and they're there to do their practice in a beautiful way and then walk out. Yeah. But then to be holding space for the possibility that other students in the same room are not feeling the chirpiness of yoga yeah. standing on the mat right next to them. I, I think that um, I practiced yoga for 20 years and I've never once done it on my own at my house. <laughs> I, I, go, I go to class 
because I like, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for social interaction that's positive and I always feel like that's true at a yoga class. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'll go to class and I'll just be very internal and the class is a difficult class and I leave and I'm also very internal, but I think that interacting with each other and meeting each other where we are is, is really, I mean, like, why else come to a class, you know? I know, yes, there's just, it's more organized and I don't do it at home, so I have to do it here. But, um, and yeah, and I've learned through my training at Esalen and just over time how to meet people where they are. You know, not say, oh, did you have a good weekend? But rather to say, how was your weekend? You know, so not to impose myself on people, but to really accept them and receive them. And I think that's probably true for interacting in the yoga setting as well. You know, and you can recognize when someone's having a bad day if you open your eyes, you know. And if we all could kind of live a little bit more like that, I think it'd be, it'd be a lot easier. Who would like to go next? Well, I think, I mean, just on that point too, I think as a student and as a human, <laughs> just interacting in life, right? Because the yoga class can kind of, and what happens on the yoga mat can kind of be a microcosm of the world. You know, just kind of acknowledging that everybody's going through something different and, and kind of being aware of people and I think also not taking personally. You know, sometimes you go into a class and it's not in a good mood. Maybe they don't say hi to you or don't give you a hug or something like that. Like, allow that to be. <laughs> um, I think that that's really important. Um, and I think just kind of like having that sense that everybody's here for a different reason. Like some people might be feeling great, some people might be there to heal and kind of having, having that sense. Um, we all come to yoga for different reasons. Um, I think something for students as well is um, the importance of just like allowing yourself to pause. <laughs> you know, if you're feeling overworked or overwhelmed or, you know, like allowing yourself to kind of like sit with that for a moment. It's okay to pause. It's okay, it's okay to stop. You don't have to keep going for the sake of perfectionism or for your teacher because you don't want your teacher to think something of you. So I think kind of the willingness to, to pause and not be perfect and to know when to kind of stop is really important. I think that that's self-empowering too. That's kind of like an internal no. Um, I'm not sure if that answered. What was the tips? For teachers? Yeah. Oh, for teachers? Um, I think kind of the same thing follows. I think like just being really aware of who you're teaching. And, you know, I think sometimes we can kind of just be in our heads so much and we can come in maybe with like a certain intention or a certain thing that we kind of want to promote or teach. And um, just being aware that that might shift depending on kind of where everybody is. Um, I think also like teachers are humans too. <laughs> teachers, therapists, like are humans too. And so like really being able to acknowledge your own state and where you are and kind of honor that, respect it, and kind of know when to pause yourself is extremely important just to kind of maintain your own, you know, internal sacred spaces you were talking about. Thank you. Yeah. I, I would, would like say to... that uh, <clears throat> from two different angles, uh, a few things that I find really helpful. One, it, it kind of goes beyond the scope of most forms of yoga because uh, something that is, is really incredibly healing for us on a neurological level is cardiovascular activity 
and we get some of that in yoga, but really getting the more intense kind of cardiovascular activity that you do when, like, my favorite thing lately is, is dancing around the living room in my underwear when nobody else is around, playing my favorite music. And, uh, it's totally risky business, and only the guys like risky business. Hopefully, there, my husband doesn't do a nanny cam because it will go viral. <laughs> but uh, as my friend, the neuroscientist at NYU, Wendy Suzuki, um, writes in her book, um, "Healthy Brain, Happy Life," you know, it's so important to get those that chemical stew going in your brain so that you have the release of the neurotransmitters that lead to a, a, an increased sense of happiness and well-being and, and better health. And I think that's really critical for, for anyone, but also for people who are dealing with a, something like a, the struggle of a trauma survivor. And then from the other point of view, things that, as I mentioned before, are really down-regulating to the nervous system are, I find to be incredibly helpful. and. Um, like your yin yoga class, uh, I had like a mini epiphany that lasted for several weeks when I took your yin yoga class. So um, I think that those kind of practices, you can have personal breakthroughs and, and insights and go really deep. And the other one that kind of came into my life by surprise a couple of years ago and really took on a life of its own and overtook a lot of my teaching activity is sound healing. Um, and if you, if you go to a lot of meditation centers and yoga studios these days and you see sound healing classes, it's like becoming like one of the most popular modalities. And it has incredibly healing benefits for in general, but it, it's really useful in the treatment of trauma because it's, it helps so much to downregulate the nervous system. And the vibrations of sound therapy have a way of not just kind of entraining your brain or, or working with your mind, but really penetrating into the body and getting into the tissues, which is sort of underlying the whole conversation that we've been having tonight, that the issues are in the tissues, as they say. Like, Trauma is not just a memory that we carry in our minds, it's something that we carry in our bodies. So we have to use modalities that get into the body uh, in order to find those things that we hold on to and start to release them. So I would say yin yoga, dancing in your underwear, <laughs> and sound therapy. Check, check, check. That's good. <laughs> yeah. So final words, um, Anne and then Greg. Um, I, I, I would agree with everything that's been said. Um, just the other day, and I don't even think this is just trauma, I was in a yoga class and it, it began, and the instructor just said, this is a multi-level class, and go at your own pace, and if you need to take a break, take a break. Um, if you need something, let me know, you know, it's going around. And I, I think the more, when you're working with trauma, I think it's just normalizing, you know, um, you know, we're going to have different, if you have a bad day, go into child's pose. You know, I like that piece, and um, I had something brought up to me twice, and so maybe it's worth mentioning. Um, two yoga instructors told me recently, asked me in my opinion what you would do. Um, someone had what you would call maybe an ab reaction, they burst into tears, their trauma came up in the pose, they were totally right there with them. They asked me, what would you do? And I said, my, my response would be to stay with them. 
because really when you're dealing with trauma, it's all about the, if you, it's a therapist, it's about being the witness. Just stay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just stay with them. No judgment. And just stay. And they also talked to me about um, that they were being upset about themselves. And I said, stay with them. And then if you can find time later, I know it's really hard. Everybody wants to talk after, I mean, I I'm always one of them, like, hey, can I talk for a minute, but, yeah, but oh my god, that class was so great, me, you know, but um, maybe if you have that extra minute to just say, you know, sit with them, and just say, is there anything I can do next time, or did something come up, you know, we're not, if you're not a therapist, don't do it, but just to let them know that you noticed it, that it's okay, it's normal, and please come back, you know, and I think when, that would start to create the safe and secure place, because that's, I keep, and I, I wanted to say this earlier, one of the things I've heard with all the people I've worked with is if the studio is safe, I'll return. I don't know why I like that instructor, he or she is safe. And those are the key words I look for, so. Can I just touch on one thing that you said there? Okay. But um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to say something, because I think it's so important too, is I think like as teachers, mm -hmm. To make sure that okay, if somebody has trauma or whatever, like to not fragilize them, to, no, to recognize no, their no. strength and all that we're not there to kind of like you know coddle, coddle no. them or like yes. okay, they're you know people are strong beyond belief and like to to kind of have that sense when you go in with somebody that you're not there to kind of yeah coddle them, but you're there to kind of help them recognize their strength. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Yeah. Awesome. Very good point. Yeah. And that there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. You're going to be smarter. Yes. Just a couple of things, I guess, uh, just building on what everybody said, because you guys all said such amazing things. Um, but I think, you know, since empathy is such mm -hmm. a key component of teaching, you know, when you go in before you start teaching, like, don't just run in and start teaching. Like, you know, go in, take a minute, put yourself into that receptive place. You know, do a gratitude practice in your life, something that helps you with empathy. You know, these types of things I think are incredibly important. Um, and then, you know, like Anne brought up, like let don't don't get so tied into your role as the teacher that you feel that you always have to provide an answer. You know what I mean? Like ask them, ask them what they need. They'll they'll tell you. You know, in mo in many cases. Um, and then I think one of the other things that we you know, sometimes see happening is this like universalizing of our own experience. So this recognition that not everybody's going to be in the same place. Just because you found a particular technique to feel amazing doesn't mean that somebody else is, right? Like that might have been the worst five minutes of their lives. So, you know, so the, like just these kind of basic sensitivities, I think, could be a revolutionary shift uh, in the yoga field. Thank you so much, um, everyone. We've got through about half of the <laughs> topics that um, I had planned for, but you know, that was the, the point. Just this is such a huge topic. So now um, I would like to open the floor to all of you. Thank you for sitting um, and listening for all this time. I do have one more thing. Yes. Sorry. Make sure that you rest at the end of your practice. <laughs> that is that is the time where the system down regulates and a lot of that healing begins. And every I just when I see people walking out after like two minutes of fake rest, you know, it's like just lay there and rest. Give yourself ten good minutes. Yes. Such a good point. Yeah. Very cool.
Yes. So, I'm not sure how we'll do it sound-wise, Alex. Yell. Okay, immediately. Am I second? Yes, but you have to yell. Okay. <laughs> okay, so my question is uh, a little bit more on the spiritual level. Because uh, so I was uh, well, I was in Mysore the last time in conference. Someone asked Sharat um, about all these like an, an appropriate touch, right? And his answer was that it was his karma. Patavi is karma. So yeah, okay. So he's gonna have to deal with that karma beyond this lifetime. But my question is, the abuser, the person who has been gone through all this touch and the trauma, how this person, how is, it, what is the role of karma in all this? I think this is a. Something that I would like to approach as a yoga teacher. I would like to talk to my students who have been going through that in that spiritual level. If any of you have any answer, would be. Happy to try. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> but you are amazing. <laughs> if uh, I don't think that there is a very um, sophisticated understanding uh, understanding of karma in many cases and I think that there's actually if you read back through kind of history there there's not even a universally agreed upon definition of karma amongst traditions mm -hmm. um, so I don't you know that is one of those sort of things that I'd be hesitant to teach on in relationship to to trauma um, because the un like while we can say oh it's empowering in the sense that I can make I can make choices and take actions that will influence my future the, the flip side of that might be that that somehow I brought this upon myself mm -hmm. um, and I think that that would be completely disempowering the exact opposite of what we want it could be re-traumatizing in a lot of ways it could reinforce some of those negative thought patterns um, so I, I would probably stay away from or steer away from it personally talking about karma in that particular scenario. Um, I don't know if this is gonna, going to address your question directly, but it was on my mind earlier, um, and it kind of relates to what you're asking. I think that, um, you know, these days we've, we've come in Western societies to think of yoga largely from the point of view of an exercise system mm -hmm. and it's it's physical and uh, and so forth and if you if you take the larger historical view and the more spiritual view of yoga it's it's much 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 larger than that and the role of asana it, you know within the eight limbs of yoga it plays its role but it plays its role within a progression of going deeper and deeper into meditative states that eventually culminate in samadhi, which is a kind of transcendent union with the the all, the consciousness that pervades everything that gave origin to all of this. So the word yoga itself means union with with that. Um, that's a very lofty goal, and to even start to approach that. You know, it, it involves a certain process of deconstruction of the ego, of the personal sense of self that really stands 
in the way of that realization of union. But it's a lot, I would, I would say it's a lot maybe not easier but more possible to deconstruct uh, a healthy, well-established, uh, functioning sense of self or ego than it is to deconstruct an ego that is in dysregulation and disarray. So from the point of view of what we've been talking about in terms of therapeutics and the role that yoga plays in healing from trauma, all of those things are very necessary along the path in order to get to a place where you can then engage in those deeper practices that are leading towards sort of the ultimate goal of samadhi. But to, I think it would shortchange the, the larger tradition of yoga if we looked at yoga as just a system of exercise or a system of therapeutics or anything like that. It's really a system of transcendence on a spiritual level. So is it like any way to put together the scientific part of what you have been talking about, which is amazing, with a little like more spiritual approach and how to unite those approaches? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the modern yoga project, right? Like, because what we've done is we've taken a pre-modern practice that didn't use scientific language and had its own models for explaining reality. And now we've brought it forth into the modern world and we're trying to explain it through a, par a completely new paradigm. So it's kind of like our duty to kind of try and look back into these things and understand them through a scientific view. And I think that there, it's possible. The way that I would think of it is that, that sort of the spiritual or religious view is kind of phenomenological, it's, it's internal, it's more subjective, whereas the scientific is a more empirical, external view. And neither one of those on their own is going to encapsulate reality, but, but actually the meeting of those two is going to give us both an external and an internal view, and both of those are important for, for integration, for to be a whole person. All right. <laughs> what, we'll take your question. Um, question. Well, I'll try to. If to avoid to be obscure and kind of walk, what if a dancing in a pajamas or like in a. <laughs> doesn't help. Neither does help practicing on your mat, doing breathing exercises, apparently not maybe consistently enough and a lot of things don't help. What if like all of this bu uh, bundle package doesn't kick it? So what you do? Sorry. I mean, <laughs> always so. I, think, I mean, I think in... <clears throat> okay, so very, this could go in a lot of different trauma, directions, but... Apparently plays a essential yeah, role, well, but I, me as a... Absolutely. Example. Well, I think, absolutely. I, I mean, I think contact with our internal experiences through yoga, dancing in your underwear, like, whatever can be, you know, you know, somebody's not ready for it, or, you know, like we've been talking about, like one thing doesn't necessarily work for another mm -hmm. person, and, you know, a certain practice at some point in your life or on your journey may not be the, you know, the right approach at that time. So I think, like, there are other methods, you know. I, you know, I think sometimes when, when I've had people who just, like, 
have a really hard time getting in touch, you know, with those internal processes or they're uncomfortable or just doesn't help. Um, you know, sometimes some like really practical things, like a lot of, you know, I, I do a lot of like exposure work, but sometimes it's just these in vivo exposures, like go say no to somebody, like go do something that's imperfect, like um, intentionally misspell word in an email to somebody, um, you know, go and return your meal <laughs> at a restaurant, like... Re yeah, so sometimes like some of those things, you know, um, I do a lot of that. Okay, beautiful. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, sometimes, sometimes we have to kind of like try different methods um, as a way to heal ourselves. It's not a, you know, one-stop shot. It's art and science. Yeah, absolutely. Continual. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Hi, um, so at the top of the session you are discussing how we have an issue of lack of diversity in our yoga world. Um, and a lot of people of color are people who suffer trauma. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at trauma as something that can be passed on from generation to generation, mm -hmm. then we have, we could say we have an epidemic, but our spaces aren't necessarily accessible. So how do we deal with that? And accessible even in the sense that we don't have a lot of teachers who necessarily, sometimes someone who experiences trauma needs to see someone that looks like them to feel safe. So being someone who's experienced trauma, who's a person of color, who's also a teacher, um, I've noticed things in the yoga world um, in the sense that sometimes even um, people of European descent aren't even ready to see me as an instructor. Um, and then, as a student, especially like in certain types of classes, I might be the only person there. Mm -hmm. And having to shift even how I teach in a more um, in a more European European space when I'm teaching to people of color, um, and then when we add different countries and things like that, it's it's a lot, and we're not necessarily talking about that in our teacher training. And even doing that in the intensive. So how do we address this thing that's there um, that's like the elephant in the room? Um, I, I talked to Tim about this before the um, this panel because um, it was brought up online. Did you see? You know, so I, mean, um, I don't know if this is helpful, but I, I, and Kristen can probably can talk to it too, but for myself, something I did for three years is I taught multicultural counseling and social diversity with the grad students for George Washington University. And I taught in South Africa in two years in India. And one of the things we've done in the therapy world is that that is a mandatory because it is global now. Most of all of our programs actually at GW are Croatia now. You know, we, we're all over the place working with this because we're all coming in diverse with different cultures, different experiences, different, and you are absolutely right. I, I'm actually going up to GW in May because we're going to do the story cloth panel with the yoga, with therapists, because we don't feel we've integrated enough of culture into what we're doing. And, um, and I think you have a great point because you, we don't see a lot of diverse yoga teachers, you know, and some of it could be the money. It's just like when I worked in eating disorders, it's a very affluent you know, population, we even worked with therapists, not to say there are people with eating disorders, they're just getting to treatment, you know, and we're finding this in substance abuse now. It's, 
you know, and I, I don't want to trail off that, but it's no longer affordable for anybody to get substance abuse treatment at 120000 for 30 days, mm-hmm. you know. And so, but this is a great point. And I mean, I, I had to do that. I had to work in treatment centers in South Africa and, and do that and learn it myself, even at, I won't mention the age. But I mean, it, you know, it's hard work. And you've brought up a great point. But I think educating and you know, working with one another and telling one another, and that's what we do a lot with like at GW. We have a lot of committees that work together and talk about what would you like a yoga class to look like? What would be the things to work with? How would the trauma be different? Because generational trauma is different that I found, very much different so. And psychodrama was a platform we ended up using and music, you know, so there's different things. But it's a great question. I don't know what you would... And I, I, sorry. I, I just... Um, you know, what I found in, in this sort of whole effort to um, reimagine, this is the words we're using, reimagine Ashtanga Yoga, has, has been sort of like the acknowledgement that these things are, are true is, first of all, a big piece of it, because there's, there's a, a large segment of the population that might not even just, you know, it feels like, oh, this isn't something we should talk about, or it's uncomfortable, so let's not deal with it. So just acknowledging it. Um, and then the other thing has been like the the ability to just listen. So I don't know, you know what I mean. I don't have the answer. So what I need to do is I need to listen to people of color. I need to listen to trauma survivors. And you know, and the same thing is just sort of saying like, what would make you feel comfortable? Because you know, I could like open doors and be like, yeah, anybody's welcome. But if I haven't created a space where certain populations feel welcome, then they're not going to come. So. I, it's outside of my ability to create that space on my own. I need input from other sources, and so building those bridges and you know, reaching out to people from communities that I might not be involved in if I want to create that more diversity. And I think too, from just you know, like we're trained in this, like it's and a fundamental part, part of the training of all. Like yeah, I think like having some aspect where you're kind of understanding different you know, cultural perspectives and norms and, you know, mm-hmm. one thing is acceptable and, you know, considered rude in a different culture. So I think that bringing that into teacher tra- trainings would be really, really important. Really important. Yeah. Yeah. And are there any tips that you have um, to offer to teachers, to a studio? How, not that it's your job to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's on the committee. Not that it's your job. <laughs> you know, but I work in such yeah. different spaces. Sometimes, like, I know, like, even just anatomy, we mm. assume that everyone knows what these things are. And I have to keep it basic, like, elbow. You know, I can't talk about a psoas. <laughs> I mentioned that to my friend who's a nurse, and she's like, what is that? <laughs> you know, but that creates, um, a space where it becomes intimidating mm-hmm. and it's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes as teachers, I know coming fresh out of like a yoga teacher training, you feel like you need to use all this anatomy that you've had to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but just keeping it simple and just making people, uh, just being authentic mm-hmm. and keeping your ears to the ground because sometimes, particularly, I think this time, um, because of social media, mm-hmm. we're experiencing vicarious trauma all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. And there are things that we're always going on, but because of access to the internet via our phone, people will like walk into a class and just hear about another person's been shot by a police officer. And then you go into a yoga studio and it's just like, hey, what's up? Everything's good, right? You know, and just like being aware like that private person might be feeling that in the moment and really just keeping your ears to the ground 
and not having superficial highs and lows, that highs and highs and highs, because we do that too. We're not really authentic in that way, which is why I love the studio that I'm at, because um, you mentioned saying like, see if you open your eyes, mm -hmm. you really know how people feel, and just really being in that place. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's That's great. Great. Thank you. Okay, Francie. Um, and you had mentioned, mentioned something about the right and left and how the neural pathways, when you get them to speak to each other, that's a form of healing. Can you touch a little bit more on that? Well, when you're working with trauma, if you work the right and left side of the brain, it helps the neural pathways to rebuild and process the trauma. That's why they have EMDR. Do you, have you, have you heard of EMDR where you follow the light back and forth? It helps to process. It's a rapid processing of trauma. But um, I... I I, I use it a lot in art therapy. We use it with pencils, painting. That's why people go do a painting class and be like, wow, I feel so good. I just can't figure out why the painting's horrible, but wow, you know? And it's, it's, it's the paintbrush back and forth. It's the thing. So I actually um, used to be a... I, I was losing my brother, and I, I rode my bike all the time, and it was the bilateral stimulation. I needed that right, right you know, doing that so that I could heal the grief. The grief was coming up so fast on me. So I've tried a lot of different yogas. And I mean, and I believe me, it, I always say to Tim when I come here, I'm like, oh, I'm too old. Can I do this? You know, I'm, I'm already complaining about some ache and pain, you know, and Amanda's heard it. And, um, and he's like, no, come. And I like it so much because it's the repetitiveness. When I leave, and I, and I tell this to some of uh, the clients I've worked with, saying you can try it because you leave and you feel like that armor is almost there. It's my own skeletal armor and my muscles. I'm in charge of my whole body when I leave, and I know that's the neural pathways working for me. I walk out very clear, very grounded, very conscious. It's a great way to heal. I mean, I I have a mother who has some dementia on. I've got I'm working on her using the the pencil back and forth because I want to see if it brings the memory back, moves aside the memory. So it's a topic I could go on forever. It was my research in grad school. But. <laughs> Like a secondary, would Nadi Shodana then be a form? Yes. Of sure, yes, absolutely. Yep. Nadi Shodana is alternate nostril breathing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. On the uh, positive side of things, <laughs> what are some of the symptoms of a trauma survivor? Mm. <laughs> a healed trauma survivor? Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, healed. Yeah, this is oh, like, yeah. being very conscious. Yeah, very aware. I, I, I'll let you go. One of my favorite lines I'll hear from people that are, I know they've recovered, they don't want me anymore, and they'll be like, oh, I'm feeling way too much. I, you know, <laughs> I, I can't kind of go out there anymore. I'm in my shoes, I'm in my feet. So then you start to learn with your own emotional regulation, like everybody has to, but that's one of the things. And I find the symptomology of, they're not afraid to go. I mean, if I have someone coming who's agoraphobic or they're not eating, I mean, you become living life. Yeah. And I think that there's kind of like a, um, like a culture of empowerment mm -hmm. too that comes. There's, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to, you know, push myself to do this thing that is scary, but it's so in line with what my values are and what matters to me. And I'm going to do that instead of step away from it. Um, and I find that there's kind of like a boredom with the trauma almost. They don't care anymore. The trauma, they're just kind of like, yeah. you know, like <laughs> that happened as opposed you. to it being this like, you right. know, thing that's like got this like really intense um, emotionality to it. So they kind of get, I mean, it's still, 
difficult, but they're they're not so activated by it anymore. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, and they're kind of like going out there and just like making things happen. Yeah, I think yeah. one of the most important aspects of that for me is that it, it becomes a pathway for compassion mm-hmm. for oneself and right. compassion for others, under a pathway to empathy and understanding others' suffering mm-hmm. and feeling empathy for that suffering because you identify with it as someone who's been through something similar. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Nice. One last question. Please. Um, so, I work um, in the Chicago and the West Side, basically bringing yoga and healthy food options to a war zone. So, this is an area where there's like no healthy food, like a lot of gang violence and drug activity. And basically, what we did was take over a few empty lots and convert it to a beautiful landscape garden. Mm-hmm. Nice. And that's just the way to the community. We also teach positive, like, uh, mindfulness practices, yoga, ashtanga, uh, asana, and everything. And one issue that I have is, like, I've been doing before, this is my ninth year, and I see kids at the age of 11, like, they lose this sense of hope, because I've seen kids, like, be incarcerated. I've seen kids, like, die. I've seen kids, like, graduate, right? So it's like, very surrounded by trauma, and at the age of 11, I see this, like, all this life I saw from them, like, you know, gardening, like, that's, like, very healing, and yoga, I was practicing sound healing, but at 11, like, there's, like, life is gone, and it's weird, I'm trying to figure out, like, where to, how to get that back, because I asked Sharath, and he said, like, you shouldn't teach them ashtanga until 12, and the same thing was possible, and there's, like, you're supposed to teach them, like, the breathing, but you can't teach them the techniques, but then, but, but at the age of 11, there's so much, you know, to see, like, life, this child, like, to society, everything around, family, friends, Being nine years old and your best friend being killed, that's not, like, normal. So I just wondering, like, what to do for that age to keep that, like, life, to hope. Group. Group activities, wouldn't you say? Huh? Group activities, when they're that young, normal. Oh, yeah, no. Sure. They're talking. Do I meditation, mean, like they do do some type of meditation. They do do simple yoga practices. Yeah. They do sound healing. It's just really weird. It's like I don't know what happens. Like it's could be like life trauma at eleven. Like I know you see a child and all this life. You need to process it. I think, yeah, one of the things that's that's really important that we didn't really touch on to is like this, the prevention mm-hmm. of post-traumatic stress issues is that, you know, because what we found is that, you know, a lot of people experience trauma. Um, um, I mean, this is unusually traumatic circumstances, of course, but, you know, what we found is that the people who talk about it and the people who have a supportive validating environment um, to turn to those people are just tremendously less likely to develop to develop these like post-traumatic stress types of symptoms you know and like hopelessness is like a shutdown mode for sure like the nervous system is just shut down um, so I, I would encourage them you know I do think maybe like some kind of like gentle asana would be you know not something like too intense but also like just some therapeutic processing, because I know a lot of times, um, like I've worked a little bit with that population before. I worked in like Liberty City and community mental health, and you know, there there's kind of like a lack of dialogue about it. And a lot of times too, it's kind of like a like 
you know, there's there's this invalidation to it, like. Well, mental health in the black community, yeah. I found, especially in Chicago, is something that's not like validated. Like, Absolutely. Like, you go through so yeah. Much, like your ancestry trauma, that's yeah. like small traumas of like my granny just got killed. Yeah. It's not a big trauma, but. That's a pretty big, it's a big, big trauma. Pretty big trauma. <laughs> it's a big trauma. But like having a space where like, wow, that must have been really hard. Yeah. As opposed to like, you know, it's over, it's past, like don't be crazy, don't yeah. like, you know, yeah. like that kind of message of like, wow, I get that. And then have another kid be like, yeah, I feel the same way. Like that's therapeutic. Yeah, yeah. so our space is kind of for them to come and build peace. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have the issue of parents, like one of my teens was suicidal and she came to me. So I'm like reaching out and looking for a therapist and I couldn't tell her parents so I had to find like a therapist who was okay with taking a teen and like it was like oh, I found somewhere in Chicago that like they it was okay without parent consent but like it's these issues that it's like it's even hard to like get them the help sometimes that they need because it's like family doesn't even look at it as it's like just something like this is just like family stuff you can't tell the public. It was like really it's interesting trying to and I, and I think too, like you can probably speak of the art therapy. I, I was think just like gonna say, art therapy would therapies. be perfect for this. I would do a group art therapy, yeah. or you like a get them painting. Like, well, like or an art journal. That's one of the things we yeah. did with the adolescent units. Is somewhere to contain this because a lot of it is somewhere to put it and then shut it down because you can't live it all the time. Yeah. Right. You know, and I think what's happening here is they're they're shutting down because they're losing their resiliency. So I would look for activities that bring on resiliency. I've heard there sounds like that would be yeah. journals right now would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and like, even doing a mandala. You know, just yeah. doing a mandala or asking them to process it on paper. It's a much different approach. And you, and Safer. like what I used to I used to have some kids that like wouldn't even talk to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they would just sit there and they would just not talk to me. I look different than them, like I you know, and um I had a kid like that for like five years. Yeah. He just like didn't but but what I started to be like, what do you like? And he like loved Lil Wayne. So I'm like, he wanted to be a rapper. I'm like, write me a rap. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he started doing that and all of a sudden I see his world and he opens up and it's like, so it's kind of like that, like some kind of expressive, mm -hmm. like it's art or, you know, music, music, writing. Yeah. And one thing to add, this was the last question, maybe we can um, have do it again. some, we'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> one thing to add, take care of yourself. Yeah. Give yourself the space mm -hmm. and to decompress so that you have your energy system protected so that you go in there clear but not receiving all of this constantly. One thing um, I had to do is realize like even, you know, Like I had to go and not only use like yoga and meditation, like the pasta and qigong for my healing. I had to like seek out therapists just because mm -hmm. I do take on a lot of trauma mm -hmm. and I want to help them through it. So like that's uh, you know the reason I'm into the practice is to release some of the stuff that I just mm -hmm. download from other people. So yeah. yes. Thank you so much for being here. This is a conversation that could go on for the next year or more. <laughs> um, so if, if we could please close Sacred Circle, we'll take three ohms together. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for your insights um, and for your presence. So 
Return your awareness to your own breath and to the beat of your own heart. There is no right way for you to be breathing. Simply listen and allow yourself to be. In gratitude, we'll close circle with three ohms. Take a full breath in. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Chat and Chai Yoga Talks from Miami Life Center. This was our second knowledge event, a panel discussion on yoga and trauma. And this event was such a success. We've had a lot of requests to have a part two. So we'll be holding one of those probably around the end of 2019. But before that, we'll have our third knowledge event on yoga and body image. This next panel discussion will actually be a part of our yoga and body image confluence taking place October 25th through the 27th. It'll be a whole weekend of workshops on the topic of yoga and body image, and it's led by experts in the field of yoga and body image. It's gonna be a really inspiring event. So if you're interested in learning more about that and the individual workshop sessions that'll be held, you can go to our website, miamilifecenter.com, and go to the workshops tab. You can sign up for individual workshops or just the panel discussion, or you can sign up for the whole weekend, up to you. If you have any questions, reach out to us at info at MiamiLifeCenter.com or reach out to us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Any questions, comments, and don't forget to leave us a review and rate us here on your podcast. Have a nice day. Namaste.